If you didn't know it, today is the fourth week of Advent. It is the fourth week of Advent. We have one more candle we're going to light tonight that represents the fact that Christ has come. And we have really, uh, through the course of the last four weeks, uh, kind of mixed up the order of our preaching schedule. As a church, on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, we've been working through what we are identifying a biblical theology, and we've been trying to live that out through the four weeks of preaching that we've been bringing on Sunday morning in regards to this. When we think about Advent, we have to know this. Advent is not simply a tradition. It is far more than a green Christmas tree. It is absolutely far more than a man dressed in red. But we recognize the fact that Advent is a worship tool. It's a tool that we are seeking to utilize to help prepare our hearts, to direct our thoughts toward the reason, the purpose for this season. It's to commemorate, it's to remember the long-anticipated deliverer, the one who was promised of old, the promised one. We are celebrating in Advent the arrival. I want to explain that in just a second. The arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when you hear the word Advent, it's a word that just, again, is kind of a part of our Christmas tradition and vocabulary, but the word means something. Words mean things. The word Advent literally means arrival. That's what it means, arrival. And we might use the word Advent in a lot of other historical contexts that we kind of divorce or we separate in our minds how that relates to what's happening in the Christmas Advent season. Uh, Think about this in a historical context. We would say things such as, with the advent of the modern motorized vehicle. We get that. When the motorized vehicle came to be the advent of the motorized vehicle, or the advent of the television. Some of you might be sitting there saying, yeah, I remember when there was no television in our family's home. The advent of the television. Or the advent of the modern computer. We, We understand that kind of terminology. It means the arrival of when it came into the stage or onto the stage, we are celebrating the fourth week of Advent, the Advent of Jesus Christ, the promised one, the deliverer. Now, I'm going to review the things that we've covered the last three weeks. I'm not doing this to re-preach or to clarify what was spoken in previous weeks, but I want to set the stage for where we're going in this last week. And where we're going this morning in our fourth week is not a traditional approach to Christmas at all. I hope you'll understand where this is headed. As we're looking at this, again, those of you that are our regulars, think about this in the big picture of a biblical theology, from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? The Advent. We're queuing some things up this morning. And the first week of our Advent celebration, Steve, one of our elders, brought us back to creation. He brought us back to the book of Genesis, in the beginning. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We know these clear words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We spent time talking about the very character, the nature of who God is, that he is the pre-existent one, he is the eternal God, that he is the sovereign one, that he is the highest one, even as one of the children kept wanting to make sure we understood this, only God is king. Remember that? This is true. He created this word, this, excuse me, this world by his word. He didn't get out the erector set, he didn't get out the chemistry set. With a word, he spoke this world into creation. 
all that he created was in perfect harmony or accord with his nature. Everything was perfect. Everything was holy. Because this is who God is. Everything that he does is in perfect harmony or accord. Another word we could use is synced with his nature, with his character. Everything that he does, everything that he says, everything that he promises are perfectly in harmony with his character. In the garden, Adam and Eve shared a perfect fellowship with God. No separation, no division. They walked with God. They were were in relationship with God. Adam and Eve knew God in a way that we cannot fathom or understand. This is the place and time where they enjoyed a perfect joy, a perfect love, a perfect peace, a perfect hope with God himself. Creation wasn't a place of curse. It was a place of blessing, a perfect blessing that they received in, with, and through God himself. But we know the rest of the story, don't we, Paul Harvey? We, we know how this turns. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall. We see original sin come into this world. All the man and woman enjoyed in the garden was lost as a result of sin. They exchanged, that they, they exchanged all that they had in God. Remember his character. Remember the relationship that they shared with him. They exchanged that for the lies and the deception. They chose Satan, the serpent, over God. They rebelled. They were trespassing. They were now sinners. They were now sinners. And we know that as a result of their original sin, we, every one of us, are sinners. We don't just do wrong things. Our very identity, our very nature is that of a sinner. We sin because we are sinners. You are identified as a sinner. And because you are a sinner... You are guilty before God. The sin brought a curse. It brought death. Remember God's nature? God promised that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What would come? Death. You will surely die. And we know, again, the rest of the story. We know how this took place and what transpired after this. God then removed them from this place of blessing. They were uh, brought out. They were excommunicated, in a sense, from the place of the garden. God cast them from the garden. He banished them into the world, a creation that now was cursed as a result of sin. They had lost all that God had blessed them in in the garden. God has expelled them from the garden, and all access to the tree of life has been cut off. It's going to come full circle. Hear that again. The tree of life... They've been removed from all access to it. It says this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground which he had taken, or, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He was cut off from this access to God himself and this tree of life. That tree of life is going to become significant by the time we get to the end of this message this morning. 
but God. It was actually Caleb who brought us to this place, as Steve introduced this. In spite of their sin, in spite of their transgression, in spite of what we have done to offend God, to rebel against Him, based on His character, He is merciful. He shows them mercy, and He gives them a promise, an incredible promise. Going back just a few verses to verse 15, it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And the kids love that section as we were working through our our, our children's book for the last couple weeks. They love the fact that Jesus, we know the rest of the story, is the one who will crush the head of Satan, who will destroy the consequence of sin and give us this, this promise of life. God promised that through the woman would come a son. And this son, though wounded by the serpent, would crush Satan and the power of sin. This promised one would restore us to all that was lost as a result of our sin. You ready? God's promise, the essence of this promise, is he would restore us. He would bring us back to the garden. Now, that was week one. In week two of our Advent celebration, Caleb had this incredible task of essentially taking us through the rest of the Old Testament. He did an incredible job of doing that. That was a huge task. And one of the things that he cued us up in doing is as we're looking at these Old Testament saints, these Old Testament characters, he said, let's do this with a sense of empathy. Do you remember him talking about that? To look at these individuals, and as these stories, as this unfolding of Scripture comes forward, We know the rest of the story of the coming of Jesus. We know what this arrival is about. But they don't. They know the promise. There's a progression. Think about your biblical theology. There's a progression of this promise. There's greater revelation that's related to that. But they don't know the rest of the story. And so his challenge to us is look at the lens of Scripture through their eyes, understanding what they know and what they don't know. And their longing is what? the garden. Their longing is to go back to the garden. And so what we recognize is because of God's character, God promised there would be restoration. There would be one who would come, who would be their deliverer, the promised one, the one who would set them free from their sin, the one who would bring reconciliation. But they don't know who he is. They don't understand these things. They walk by faith, a trust in what is unseen. So their plea, in a sense, was, how can we be saved from our sin? And so through their timeline, through this progression of events that takes place throughout Scripture, they would ask a question. Think about Adam and Eve as these sons are born, as the first sons come through the woman. Would this deliverer be Cain? Was it Abel? Oh, no. It's not Abel. Is it Seth? God's replaced him. There's another one. Is this who the deliverer is? Or would it come in a later generation? Would it be Noah? This righteous man, a man set apart from all of the generations, is he the one who will be our salvation? Or will it be Abraham? The one in whom God makes this promise. This promise that he will have many descendants. A nation will come through him. Is it through Abraham? Or is it through his son Isaac? 
Is this the one who will deliver us? Is this the one who's going to bring us back to the garden? In the next generation or generations later, we would look and say, is it Moses? All of the Jewish people would look to Moses as the greatest of prophets, the deliverer, the one who led them up and out of Egypt. Is this the one? Or would it be Joshua, the one who led them back into the promised land? Or or was it through this system that God provided uh, on the mountain to Moses? Is it through the law? Oh, God has given us a system that if we follow these rules and regulations, if we live righteously enough, we can restore ourselves to the garden. But the law shows us we can't live righteously enough. We're continually looking through their lens saying, how will this salvation come? Who will be this deliverer? How will the head of Satan be crushed? How will this take place? In another generation, after the judges, they look to God and say, God, like all the nations that surround us, give us a king. A king will deliver us. A king will rule over us. A king will restore these, this righteousness, this peace that we desire. Would it be David? But even David couldn't do this. Which led us to where we were last week. Many of us would be in the third week of Advent, and we would say, we shouldn't be to Christ yet. Some of you mentioned that to me. Why in the world is it that in the third week of Advent, Caleb brought us to this section that we see the Advent of Christ? We see the birth of Jesus. It's because there's still more coming in the fourth week. On week three of Advent, the arrival, Christ has come. We rejoice, again, remember that empathy. Look at this through the lens of the Old Testament saints. God has now been silent for 400 years. He's not spoken a word. He is silent. In a sense, the people would say, where is God? Where is this deliverer? Where is this promised one? Will he be faithful to his promises? God's always faithful to his promises. (coughs) Excuse me. For it's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that we know these words. For to us, a child is born. I don't want to play games with the text, but please let's set this in the stage. The child will be born. The one who will come through the woman. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. This is a promise related to the deliverer. And those of us that know that Isaiah 9 passage know the greatness and the explanation of how this deliverer will come. God became flesh. God dwelt among us. This wasn't just another Moses. This isn't another Joshua. This isn't another prophet of human form. He wasn't a human priest who had to go before the the, the throne and, and offer atonement for his own sin before he could do this on behalf of the people. This wasn't a human priest in that regard. Jesus didn't come bringing another set of rules. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't come in saying, okay, here are the new covenant rules. Do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and now you can make yourself righteous. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus came and said, take on my righteousness. Put your faith and trust in me for my righteousness. I am the sinless one. I am the only one who is holy. Christ is a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Christ is the one who fulfills the law. Jesus is the one God promised in the garden. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. 
He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. He would live the sinless, holy life that none of us were capable of. The sinless life that for those who believe is accredited to us. It's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ that's accredited to us. He would pay the penalty of sin in our place. Substitution. He paid the penalty that we were worthy of, that we deserved as sinners. We are the guilty ones, not Jesus. He paid that penalty on the cross on our behalf. He died that we might have life. And yet he was victorious over death. And in his life, we have the hope of life as well. John 20 verse 31 says this. As John records, this is why I have written this gospel account. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Just a quick explanation, that you would believe that Jesus is the promised one. He is the one God promised. The Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That sets the stage for where we turn the page to this fourth week of Advent. God will restore all that was lost in sin. You guys, this is where we look forward. Caleb, excuse me, not Caleb, but Jason and I didn't plan this, but Jason pointed us toward the fact that there's still another coming. There's a second Advent that we look for. That's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. Today, we see in the fourth week of Advent that we get to look forward. There's something that we anticipate. There's something that we are excited about. We should be excited about. The best is yet to come. Now, that's a hard principle to teach to small children, isn't it? The best is yet to come. In that concept is entangled this idea of delayed gratification. Do you know what I'm talking about when we say that? If you would just work a little harder, if you would just wait, there's something really special. But as children, we just want it all right now, right? I was thinking about it, trying to think of a way to know how to communicate that and illustrate that to you guys. And those of you that know us, you know that we have grandchildren, and we love to take our grandchildren to the 4th of July parade, or the 4th of July fireworks. And as you go to the fireworks, it's been so fun to sit there with little ones again at the fireworks and to be able to enjoy and be able to see the things that are going on there. And, and you know, some kids are afraid of the fireworks. We've been blessed in the fact that our grandkids, they've enjoyed them. They've not been afraid of them. And to have those little ones in your lap and to be able to sit back, and especially in a small venue like there is in a Lake Linden kind of a venue, and many of those fireworks are just right over top of you. And to be able to talk to them and say, oh, look at that one. Oh, which colors do you like? Do you like the red ones? Do you like the white ones? And oh, look, at that's a multicolored one. And, and you know, even to hear from little hearts and little voices like, oh, ooh, you know, those kinds of effects. And to be able to say, oh, no, look over there. Look, now there's the waterfall ones. Aren't those cool? And oh, yeah, and they're just kind of taking them all in. And be able to explain to those little ones in a way that they don't understand. But guys... The best is yet to come. There's something called a grand finale. The grand finale is still coming. And and from their perspective, no, this is as good as it gets. This is glorious. This is wonderful. And then to wait that period of time and to recognize, no, this is better. This is really good. That was good. This is really, really good. You guys? 
on this fourth Sunday of Advent. I I want to remind us that the best is yet to come. We are still longing for what lies ahead of us. I want to point us to the second advent of Jesus Christ, the second arrival of Jesus Christ. The best is yet to come. It is good for us to rejoice. It is good for us to celebrate. It is good for us even to rest in what Christ has accomplished. And we should. I'm not trying to undermine any of that teaching or those thoughts. Christ proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. What Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, the sinless life he lived, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been accredited to us, it is complete. That work is finished. He has done that. The atoning sacrifice, the blood that was shed, the life that was given from the sinless one on on behalf of the sinful ones, it's paid for. There's nothing more I can add to that. Remember Galatians, guys? We can't do anything to add to what Christ has done on our behalf. In Christ, we have life, and we should glory in that. Our position in Christ before the throne is of righteousness. We should glory in that. Glory in what Christ has finished and completed in his first incarnation. If you've put your faith and I use that word intentionally, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are a new creation in him. You once were dead in your trespasses and sin, but in Christ you have been made alive. And I would be terribly remiss to assume that everyone who's seated here this morning knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. I would be terribly remiss in assuming that. There are many who are here on a daily, weekly, regular basis. There might even be ones who are identified as members of this church. And I would be terribly wrong to assume that every one of you are believers in Jesus Christ, that there has been a true transformation in your heart. I want to call you to the fact that there are so many of the truths that we're going to be looking at this morning that call us to the fact that we must put our faith and trust in Christ, not in our works, not in what we can do, not in a religious system, but in what Christ has done on our behalf. But for the Christian, for those who are in Christ Jesus, the realities of our salvation in Christ are described by theologians this way. The already but not yet realities. Can I repeat that? The already but not yet realities. I'm going to quote a a professor from the Westminster Theological Seminary. He says it this way. For now, Christians live in a great theological tension. We already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ. Hear this. But we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. In one sense, we are already adopted. We are already redeemed. We have been sanctified and saved. He goes on to say, in another sense, these experiences are not yet fully ours. End quote. The full enjoyment of these blessings are not yet fully ours. 
We are currently living and walking by faith as we anticipate the fullness of what, what we will experience in eternity. We're looking forward to what is yet to come, what lies ahead of us. We use this text, and rightly so, when we look at Hebrews chapter 11 to look at the Old Testament saints. Remember that empathy? What they didn't know. We look at this text and we say, by faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. And that's right to say that, that Hebrews 11 is talking about the Old Testament saints who were looking forward to the deliverer, to the promised one, who would come. The one in whom we have now seen in the advent of Christ, right? But in another sense, as we look to Hebrews chapter 11, there's a truth for us as well. The first advent has taken place, and we have seen him, if we could say it that way. As 1 John chapter 1 talks about, as John communicates to us, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, we share with you that you would have this fellowship also. So in a sense, we know that. But you guys, I fear that as Christians in North America who are so comfortable in the year that we live in, we are so comfortable where we are, we're forgetting that the best is yet to come. We need to walk by faith. Let me give you some examples of the already but not yet realities of Scripture. This was a much larger portion of my notes, and I've refined it much smaller, just to give you a taste of what I'm talking about. In Christ, your position before God is that of sanctified. You are holy. The righteousness of Christ has been accredited to you. When God the Father looks upon you, he does not see the righteousness that you produce. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. But, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, That's not yet been practically fulfilled. And boy, I understand that firsthand. Because I might positionally be sanctified or holy before God, but I know every day I fall on my face in sin because I am unholy. That's not yet. But there's a day that it will be. Do you get it? We look forward to that day. We still wrestle with flesh and sin. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we are already redeemed. That's been purchased. That's been done, completed by Jesus Christ. But in another sense, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, verse 30 tells us that's not yet practically experienced. There's going to be something further, a further experience regarding that redemption that's going to happen in the future. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we are already adopted as sons and daughters. Yet according to Romans 8.23, it tells us that the fruition, the outcome, the reality of this adoption still lies ahead of us. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we are saved. Think about this, guys. In Christ, you are saved from your sin. This is one that you could muddle through this afternoon a little bit. But according to Romans 5.9, not yet. There's a further aspect of that that's yet to be experienced, a reality that's yet to come. In Ephesians chapter 2, 6, it tells us that we are raised in Christ, or raised with Christ, excuse me. But according to 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it tells us that that day is still to come. You guys, the best is yet to come. We should long for it. We should be excited about it. We should be looking forward to this. The point 
Everything for your salvation is gloriously accomplished and true. But there's still more to come. The realities, the fruition, the outcome, the experience, the reality of these things, the grand finale, the best is yet to come. The already but not yet realities of your salvation. Today, we celebrate the first advent of Jesus Christ. But I want to remind us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we walk by faith as we anticipate, as we look forward to the second advent of Christ. He's coming again. He is coming again. Today we want to take a moment to point us toward the fact of this is what we long for. This is what we wait for. Hear these words. These are the Apostle Paul, the words of the Apostle Paul in his last recorded words in the pages of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is where his heart is. This is what he longs for. Starting in verse 6, Paul says as, as he's preparing to be executed, he knows he's going to die in, in moments or days, hours, he doesn't know, but it's right ahead of him. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. For I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, excuse me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He's looking for a future day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What is Paul saying? I'm looking forward to the already but not yet realities of my salvation. That day is coming. Think about the words of Paul in other passages of Scripture. When he speaks very transparently and he says of himself, Oh, wretched man that I am. I do not do the things that I long to do. What's he saying? This burden of sin in this flesh, I fight against it. But there's a day coming when the already but not yet realities will be reality. And I look forward, I long for this day. Paul longs for this consummation at the return of Christ. Jesus is coming again. He is coming again to make all things new. Jesus is coming again. You ready? He's going to restore us to the garden. He's bringing us back to what was lost in the garden. It's in Titus chapter 2 that it says this. For the grace of God has appeared. Advent 1. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is where we are right now. He has trained us to live this way. There's a calling. There's a lifestyle. There's a way that we live as followers of Christ. That's not what makes us righteous. This is how we walk obedient in regards to the reality of where we stand in Christ. Look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing, the advent, the advent of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, 
The grace of our God appearing, bringing salvation for all people. That's the Christmas message. That's Advent 1. Today's this present age and this battle of flesh and the worldly passions that's being spoken about here. This world is cursed because of sin. We live in a broken, sinful world. A world that is contaminated and loaded with atrocities, with the thorns that are described to Abraham, to Adam, as he will work the ground and labor by them. We live in a world that is cursed as a result of our sin, the hurt, the broken relationships, the sicknesses, the disease, the corruption, our sin of the flesh. This is all a part of the reality we live in today, this present age, the worldly passions that are around us. But if we have trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God through His completed work on our behalf. But we have not yet seen Him face to face. The relationship, the union, the peace, the love, the fellowship that was lost in the garden has not yet practically been restored to us. We have not yet received the fullness of sweet fellowship with God that was lost in the garden. The promise given in Genesis brings us full circle. God promises that he will bring about a full and complete restoration of all that was lost because of our sin. Now, I have a really quick outline. It's not even numerated. Just some points I want to share with you. And most of what I'm going to share, I'm going to share some texts. I'm going to make very little comment on them. I want Scripture to speak for itself in in large cases here. First point I want you to see. Jesus promised us he's coming back. Do you remember from Genesis chapter 1 that we talked about? Remember God's character? Jesus is God. And so therefore, on the very basis of his character, he cannot lie. What he has promised us will take place. According to John chapter 14, we can stand on this promise from God himself. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I would add to that because we are one. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Through every generation of the church, from Pentecost to the day that we live in today, for as long as the Lord should tarry, Every generation of the church has clung to the reality of the eminence of the return of Jesus Christ. I fear that our generation is losing that thought. I fear that we lose that thought. The church has always preached and eagerly anticipated the eminent return of Jesus Christ. I have a friend, and when he prays, he will frequently, if not always, conclude his prayer this way. You ready? Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. My friend has shared with me more than once that upon concluding this prayer with other believers, he will have other Christians question that statement. Do we really want that? Do we, do we really desire that? that? That might not be a good thing to pray. It might not be a good idea. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me tell you, if you are a child of God and you do not 
long for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, you may very well be more in love with this world than you are with Christ himself. We should long for his return. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Here's a question for you. Do you long for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Do you? Next point. On that day, he's going to bring perfect judgment on all who sin. If you've not repented of your sin, if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ as your only means of salvation, there's no other way to say this. You should fear this day. This will be a terrible day. For the word of God tells us that on the day, on that day, Jesus will bring a perfect, holy, and terrible wrath upon everyone who has rejected him. There are too many who advocate for a gospel that proclaims a universal salvation, that what Jesus has done saved everyone. And yet that's not what the word of God says. For wide is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the path that leads to life. Jesus says, no man comes to the Father but by me. And we must recognize, as I already said, to speak to a room, a group of people of this size and this number of people, that'd be dead flat wrong to assume everyone here has trusted Christ. There is a terrible day of judgment that is coming. And there is only one way of salvation. It's in Christ. It's not your righteousness. It's in what Christ has done on our behalf. Just as God was faithful to his promise in the garden, his promise at that time, it sounds like a negative one, but it's true, eat of the tree and you will surely die. God has promised that he will bring a final judgment upon both the living and the dead. This day is still coming. There's a day of judgment that lies ahead. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, that it says this. And this is a longer passage. I'm projecting it because I believe the word of God is powerful, and I want you to be able to read it to see it as I'm reading it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Haiti gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire, lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Are you ready for that day of judgment? Are you ready? There's only way to be ready. Only one way. And that's in his son, Jesus Christ. This day of judgment will come at his second advent. He will establish 
a new heaven and a new earth. We start looking toward the garden again, guys. It's in Revelation chapter 21. This is what we long for. This is what we're looking for. Revelation 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Hear those words. What was lost in the garden? This union, this fellowship, this relationship that Adam and Eve had without sin with God. What will be restored? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And we will live with him forever. Revelation chapter 22. The biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation. A common meta-narrative proclaiming the salvation of Jesus Christ. It says in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. You guys don't miss this. The tree of life. The tree from the garden. Hear that, guys. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Not the first Noel. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no lamp of light, uh, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you remember God's character from Genesis chapter one? In the beginning, God. God is always faithful to his promises. He will always accomplish what he says he will do. In the garden, all was lost as a result of our rebellion against God. This is our sin, our trespass. We, in the first Adam, chose the lies of Satan over the truth and the faithfulness of God. But God promised, God promised he would send a deliverer one who would set us free from our sin. God is always faithful to his promises. Advent is a tool we use in our corporate worship to help prepare our hearts 
for the long-anticipated deliverer, the promised one, the arrival of our Savior. Today's Christmas Eve. Today we celebrate the first advent of Jesus Christ. As we celebrate the first advent of Christ, today we should set our gaze, ready, on his second advent. We should long for that day. And my call to you is you should be ready for that day. And we can only be ready, not by ourselves, not by what we've done, but it is only in Christ. Here's your closing question. Brother and sister in Christ, do you long for his appearing? Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly.